Arnant was being hunted. A strange man had come to him in his dreams. He watched in horror as the creature, who called itself Stefan, took a bite out of a cow sitting in his living room. The animal twitched and fought, but Stefan did not relinquish his grip until it slumped to the ground. He smiled again with sharp, wet teeth and gave Arnant the same hungry look he'd given the mutilated cow. It had been months since the strange incident in Kisilyevo, but Arnant still remembered the priest's words. He knew what he saw, and he knew what to do. An old wives' tale urged him to find Stefan's grave and cover his face with its dirt. The burial soil now clung to his skin, but Arnant wasn't willing to take chances. He moved towns, only traveling during the day. But each night, Stefan visited him in his dreams, ever closer. Arnant was running out of time. The sun had just sunk below the horizon when he arrived in Kisilyevo, the one place that might know how to slay this beast. Arnant fought desperately to keep his eyes open. There had been a string of murders along the road, and Arnant was certain that Stefan had been behind them all. The air was frigid, and his breath came in icy rasps. Arnant hid out in a barn, unable to find an inn in the darkness. He found a lantern that someone had left unattended and lit the wick. In the dim light, he could see a shadowy figure near the door. The animals began to panic as Arnant searched the room for some sort of escape. A sheep dropped dead beside him. Then, another. The shadow came closer. He could not see Stefan's face in the thing before him, but he could sense that it was the same creature. A draft horse blocked the only doorway. But there were other ways to be free of a demon. Arnant dropped the lantern to the ground and climbed into the hay wagon. The hay on the barn's floorboards caught fire quickly, and soon Arnant could feel the heat tearing into his own skin. He laughed through his pain as the shadow took on the shape of Stefan's body. Flames licked at him, but still the monster smiled. As the roof started to fall, Arnant felt the creature's wet, warm breath against his skin. The heat grew as two sharp points found his neck. He felt the weight of Stefan's body on his chest and all faded to ash. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Kisaljevo, a small village in Serbia that was the site of the first reported case of vampirism in 1725, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as Parcast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Kiseljevo is a small town, smaller than most. Located in northeast Serbia, near the Serbia-Romanian border, about 60 miles east from Belgrade, it's home to just over 700 residents. It's easy to miss from the road, as the turnoff is marked only by one small sign, and the town square is more quiet than not. The citizens of Kiseljevo hope to change that, though, because they have a story that could rival Romania's famous Castle Dracula when it comes to supernatural shock and awe. In 1725, a peasant named Peter Blagojevich appeared in the dreams of nine different citizens of Kiseljevo. He'd stop at their homes, demanding food, clothes, or shoes, and would exit as soon as his needs were answered. It would all be a strange series of coincidences if Peter didn't cause people to act irrationally. Radmila had seen Peter fall. Her neighbor had been working on the roof for hours, as he had many times before, when a slight misstep sent him tumbling to the ground. The crack was loud, and the work around him ceased. She'd been the first one to approach the body. His head was bent too far back. The notches in his spine jutted out from beneath his linen shirt. But the thing that had unnerved her the most were his eyes. They were still wide open, and as she knelt closer to the body, she could swear that he was staring at her. As she lay in bed that night, her muscles sore from the work she had been doing on the little patch of land her husband owned, she could not get those eyes out of her head. Her husband, Dragon, told her that Peter's vacant gaze when he'd fallen could be a sign of evil. But he assured her that they would place coins to weigh down his eyelids when they buried him. Things would be fine. They would never open again. She dreamt of livestock crumpling in the snow, their necks bloody, knees broken, red spreading outward from their stomachs and throats. Her hands reached out to touch the fallen animals, but they always slipped from her grasp. A pain shot down her side, and when she glanced down, she saw blood. Dragon jostled her awake. He soothed her and held her tight, but she kept repeating one word. Peter. To prove that nothing was wrong, Dragon took Radmila to attend Peter's burial. The slate stone had been placed into the ground, and Peter was next. Radmila got a glimpse of the coins on his eyes before they closed the wooden box and lowered him into the ground. Dragon told her that her dreams would be over soon. It was just the shock of watching someone die. Radmila smiled weakly at him. The next time she closed her eyes, 
Peter was waiting for her. She squeezed herself into the back corner of their house, willing him to disappear. But Peter was undeterred. He walked towards her slowly, his limbs swollen and an inhuman red. His head was still oddly bent, but his wide eyes were fixed on hers. He blinked, and she stopped breathing. Scratches appeared on her arms. Blood dripped slowly onto the wooden floor. She opened her mouth to scream for Dragon, but something tightened around her throat. Peter watched her gasp for air with his always-open eyes. His skin was flushed pink. No, crimson. And his flesh seemed stretched across his body, engorged like a mosquito in summer. He placed one finger under her chin and directed her gaze to another corner of the room. Slumped on the floor was the body of her beloved dragon. Crimson blood leaked out of his ears and pooled around his head. Ramula woke with a start. Dragon was snoring beside her. She placed her head on his chest and listened to his heartbeat, allowing it to lull her back to sleep. It hadn't been real, she reminded herself. She could not explain why there were bruises around her throat and scabbed trails of blood down her arms the next morning. Dragon kissed her wounds with tender care and kept a close eye on her for the rest of the day. When night came, he sat up next to her on their small bed. If she was not going to sleep, neither was he. Radmila had the urge to tell him to flee. The image of him dead still lay heavy in her mind, but she knew he wouldn't listen to her. The wounds on her body had frightened him. Dragon stroked her hair and hugged her tight as clouds floated across the moon. Her eyes fluttered shut just as the sun started to rise in the sky. This time, there was no Peter. It was dark again when she woke to a tightness around her throat. She screamed, horrified that Peter had somehow found her, but the sound did not come out right. Dragon was at her side in an instant. He told her not to speak. She tried again, and only the barest croak left her throat. Her husband wet a cloth in the snow outside and brought it to her head. He said she had been hot to the touch for hours. Radmila tried to stand up, but she did not have the strength to move. She could not even lift her head without feeling a deep pain pounding through her skull. She held up her hand, realizing that it was swollen, flushed the same red as Peter's skin had been. He had done this to her. She tried to tell Dragon what was happening, but she could not get more than Peter's name out. The rest of the words clung to her insides, pulling away at her flesh. She felt tired again, like there were coins over her own eyes, weighing the lids down never to open again. Perhaps with a bit more sleep, she would have the strength she needed. Perhaps her voice would come back. When Rabmila awoke, she felt the cold of metal against her skin first. There was no light in the room. She called for Dragon, but she did not hear any response. 
Her swollen limbs made their bed uncomfortable. Radmila placed a hand behind herself to help shift her position and paused. There was no thin hay mattress beneath her. There was only bare, cold wood. She tried to jerk upwards, but hit her head on more wood. Coins clattered to the bottom of the box. Radmila tried to punch through, but it was no use. Her limbs still felt heavy and stiff. Then, from the darkest corner of the box, came a chirping noise. Some winged thing flew towards her, hopping along her leg, with small, three-toed pinpricks. She opened her fist to reveal her palm, and the creature she could not see landed on top. It spoke to her with a human voice. The only way out, it whispered softly, was to close her eyes. She did, and suddenly she was back in her house with her husband. But something was wrong. Dragon would not come to her, and her eyelids were so very heavy. Yet she could feel him near her, just as she was used to searching for him in the dark after a nightmare on cold nights. He cowered in a corner near the bed. When she got close enough to hear him, she could make out his repeated apology to her, tripping over his words. I'm sorry, my love. I'm sorry. Radmila tried to touch him, but he flinched. With great effort, she opened her eyes, and she found herself back in the cold, dark box. She let her lids fall again. Just a little rest. She was back in her bedroom again. Dragon was whimpering, screaming. She couldn't see him, but she knew he was so small, so helpless. And she was so hungry. With all her strength, she forced her eyes open again, and she was back in the box. There was no flying creature there now, just darkness that even her fully dilated pupils couldn't penetrate. She had finally learned the game. If she wanted Dragon to be safe, if she wanted to hide her love from Peter's eyes, she would have to stay in this darkness, her own eyes open, always open, trapped by Peter's cruelty and her own loneliness. Each of the nine people who reported dreaming of Peter Blagojevich in 1725 were found dead a mere 24 hours after these dreams. The Kisilyevo town doctor was both puzzled and worried. Whispers spread through the town of a vampire, a monster risen from the dead to kill and consume. Unlike the modern Western vampires that are known for their seductive qualities and interest in nobility, Eastern European vampires are a different kind of creature. They prey on the lower class and lack the charisma that would make it easy for them to attract people. Instead, their bodies are heavy and red, like bloated corpses with fresh blood pushed into their veins. They visit people in their dreams and can transform into both animals and vegetation if it will make their prey easier to find. But the strangest element to the legend 
is that these vampires don't drain their victim of their blood. Their most common form of murder is committed by sitting on the prey's chest, suffocating them to death as they watch them with wide, open eyes. Eastern Europe developed their own category of words surrounding the legend, including povampirisati, or the act of becoming a vampire, and vampirisati, which means having qualities that make one particularly susceptible to vampirism, usually connection to the diabolic, or a disconnect from the community. But how could they stay connected? Neighbors were turning against neighbors. Commerce ground to a halt. People were hiding in their homes. Crops rotted in fields because no one was brave enough to till them. Serbia was part of the Habsburg Empire from 1718 to 1739. So Kiseljevo's unrest reached the ears of the Austrian occupiers. A local Austrian official, Imperial Provisor Frambald, urged them to wait for reinforcements. But the panicked villagers insisted the problem be handled now. So Frambald, a local priest, and some of the townspeople exhumed Peter Blagojevich's body. But what they found was somehow more horrible than the dreams that had killed their neighbors. And it would give birth to a legend that terrifies people around the world, even today. Coming up, we'll hear more about the origins of this incredible legend. Now, back to the story. In 1725, the Austrian government officially designated Peter Blagojevich, the peasant from Kislyevo, as a vampire, as a result of Imperial Provisor Frambald's report. Yet there's a stark lack of concrete information about a case that was supposed to have been entered into official state records. Frambald's report, which ran in a Viennese newspaper and brought the case to the larger attention of Europe, can no longer be located. There were seven dead bodies when the whispers began about exhuming Peter Blagojevich. Zorin was scared of the way the village had changed in less than a week. Their town had been quiet and calm, neighbors looking out for each other. Now doors were locked and windows were sealed. People were afraid to speak to one another. Many would not even report what had happened to their friends and family, for fear that it would invite Peter into their own homes. As the mayor, Zorin became the one person these frightened souls would run to. Anytime he left his house, they accosted him, grabbing his arms so tightly they left bruises. Something must be done, they demanded, before it was too late. So, Zorn had set up more guards at night and upped their wages. They patrolled the town with torches. From the inside, the lights looked like spirits unto themselves, floating through the cold darkness. Zorn had only just laid on his bed when he heard the sound. It was a cold night, and he told himself it was only the swelling of the door on its hinges. But the noise continued growing louder. Zorin crept from his room to the larger living space. But it was empty. He opened his front door. The guards were still at their posts, and the patrolling pair had just passed by his home. Zorin headed back to his room. 
He laid back on the straw pallet, eyes closed. But some part of him told him to look. On the ceiling, written in a jagged, bloody hand, dripping down towards the bed, were two words. Save us. Zorn called for the guards, but they couldn't figure out how the intruder had entered. He scrubbed his ceiling and walls, but splotches of crimson stuck to the stone. A lurid reminder of his village's suffering. He tried to sleep, but every noise woke him up. The next morning, there was a larger crowd outside his house. Another person had fallen ill. Peter had claimed an eighth victim. Peter's wife even came to Zorin, sobbing. Her husband, she said, had appeared in their home, asking for his shoes. The town was now beside itself, begging for help from any source. A priest, the army, they'd even take the Austrians at this point. So Zorin wrote to the Austrian governors, but it would be days before he would get a response. A local woman, Marina, called Zorin the bringer of death but he tried to keep his head held high. He could not fight what did not exist. It was the screams that woke him the next night, deep, guttural cries of anguish that came from under his bed. When he knelt to check, the space was empty. He moved into the living room, curled up near the fireplace, and went to sleep. A few hours later came more cries outside. Zorin called the guards in, and they searched for the source. Eventually, they found it. A small basket sat at his back door. It held a baby with a note. Peter killed my mother. More will follow. Zorin went to his sister's house, apologizing for waking her up. He asked her to watch the child for him. She accepted with a kind smile. When Zorn returned to his home, there was more blood on the floor. A noxious odor wafted from a corner. Again he searched, and this time he was rewarded with the sight of a decaying pig. He pulled the body into his fireplace and set it alight. The blood could wait until the next day. He was spared some trouble when the sun rose. There were no illnesses or reports of mysterious visions. But the people were still crowding his space, making it nearly impossible for him to leave. They wanted to see the pig's body, to prove that the string of deaths was tied to the many who had died weeks ago. But Zorin would not be swayed by superstition. He would not let the hysteria that had mocked his people's suffering take hold. And then, the unthinkable happened. Zorn was able to sleep through the night. There were no babies or blood. There was just silence. But in the early hours of the morning, Zorn could feel that something was off. He opened his door to find his brother-in-law. The man's face had been drained of any color. He didn't speak, just turned and headed towards his house. Zorin trailed behind, concerned that the baby had passed in their sleep. His sister had wanted a child for a long time, 
and she would be beside herself with grief. But it was not the baby he had to worry about. It was his sister. She was sweating, though her skin felt cold to the touch. Her cheeks were green, and she could not move without groaning in pain. The sickness had come for her. She muttered Peter's name as she shivered with fever. A small breath of doubt touched Zorn's soul, but he only said his goodbyes, leaving a coin with her husband for burial. He tried to sneak back into his house to be alone with his grief, but others were awake and had already started gathering again. They screamed at him that this was justice. His refusal to listen had caused his sister's death. He was just as guilty as Peter, allowing the people to die and doing nothing. Zoran had had enough. He and the local Austrian imperial provisor, Frambold, sent a letter to Vienna. Frambold begged him to wait for the Austrian doctors and soldiers to arrive so they could get things under control. But Zoran knew they would not arrive before his town descended into utter chaos. He called the local priest to meet him and provisor Frambald at Peter's grave. The situation had grown out of his control. He would settle the matter once and for all by revealing that dead men did not rise. Zorin marched up to the graveyard on the bluff as the townsfolk followed him, brandishing a shovel like a weapon and ignoring the villagers that clutched carved stakes to their chests. The shovel bounced back in his hands as he pressed on the frosted ground, but he kept fighting. He scraped at the earth, ignoring the way that it tried to fight him in return. The villagers did not join in, but he didn't care. He would unearth this man, this plague, on his own. He ripped more ice and soil from the space in front of the small, unengraved rock that marked the end of Peter Blagojevich. Someone grabbed at his shoulder, but he shook off their hold. They called his name, but he refused to stop. Not until they had finished with this. Provisor Frombald dragged him away. The priest was there now. They would continue things. But Zorin was not satisfied. He'd spent days being terrorized by the people he was supposed to help. He wanted his own justice. It was his turn to scream, to rage at these people. They would find no peace in that cold wooden box. It would not bring back their dead. It was Frombald and the priest who finally struck the wood of the coffin with their shovels. Zorin stepped forward. He told them both that this was his job and leapt into the grave, wrenching the nails on the coffin free with the end of the shovel. They would see, they would all see. But Peter did not look like a dead man. He didn't look human. His face was stretched too far. A sickly orange and red mass seemed to move beneath the skin. His hair had grown and his nails were sharp with fresh dirt beneath them. Somehow, one of the townspeople's absurd stakes found its way into Zoran's hand. He thrust it downward stabbing the shifting mass where the man's heart had been. Fluid leaked out of Peter's head, red and gelatinous. It spurted, 
covering Zoran's frostbitten fingers in scarlet warmth. The body made a twitching motion, and then it was still. But Zoran wasn't satisfied. He picked up a fractured part of the slate beneath the coffin and began to batter Peter's face and torso, hitting it over and over again, screaming. He felt arms lifting him out of the grave. And then, only then, did he feel the blood dripping down his face. I am the bringer of death, Zorin thought. And he smiled. Despite the theatrical end to his own tale and the stories that follow him, the location of Peter Blagojevich's body is unknown, as his death predates the tradition of engraving graves with names and dates in Serbia. While Peter's story has not been lost to history, his body has. Superstitious or not, it does not seem like a good thing to misplace. Later that same year, the Aulik War Council's protocol book noted that all materials related to the Blagojevich case had been discarded. Provisor Frombald would later be asked to investigate another vampire in 1732 in nearby Midvadia. The second case begins much like the first. In fact, it all begins in the same year, 1725. Arnold Paoli reported being plagued by a vampire along the road from Ottoman-controlled Serbia to the Austrian-Serbian territories, but he boasted that he had rid himself of the beast's attention by eating soil from the vampire's grave and smearing his face with blood. Shortly after, he died in a fall from a hay wagon, a quotidian death after a very strange story. All seemed quiet. Then, dark dreams began to plague the villagers. Four people died in quick succession, and the villagers decided to exhume him. To their horror, Arnold looked exactly as he had the day he'd been buried. The man's shape was engorged with blood, as a mosquito would be, and his nails were long and sharp. The townsfolk drove a stake through Pioli's heart. He gave out an unearthly shriek and began to groan. They quickly beheaded Pioli and set the corpse alight. Then they moved to his four victims, repeating the process until the whole cemetery smelled like blood and burned flesh. Then, five years later, ten people died within ten weeks, and three more were added to the death toll shortly after that. The Austrians were called again, and the Imperial Contagions Medicus, or Epidemiologist, arrived in December 1731. He found no sign of contagious diseases, and blamed the deaths on malnutrition and the fasting that was a major part of Eastern Orthodox religious practice. Yet the villagers wouldn't be calmed, and the contagions medicus agreed to exhume a few of the afflicted dead. He was confused to find that the townspeople were right. Many of the bodies were intact and engorged with blood, while the more recent victims were undergoing a normal decomposition process. He wrote to his superiors to suggest that the Austrians humor the locals, and they sent another commission to investigate the case in January 1732. 
This is where we first find the word vampire, used repeatedly in print. And the joint Austrian and Serbian team went as far as to invent a German word to describe the state of the bodies. Vampirenstend, or vampiric condition. In accordance with the town's wishes, the strange corpses were beheaded and burned, and their ashes were thrown in a river. The surgeons reported this series of events in Visum et Repertum. The report ran across Europe and is believed to inspire the work of both John William Polidori's The Vampire and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Kiselyevo town historian Mirko Bokicic notes that several other incidents of vampirism have been reported in the village, even though many townspeople are reluctant for Peter's name or vampirism to be brought up, particularly after an Eastern Orthodox church was built in the village in 1825. But if you go looking, you can still find a tale or two told in hushed whispers by wary villagers, including the story of Ruja Japunica, who was seen on the steps of her former home 100 years after her first instance of vampiric behavior and death in the 1830s. Many Serbian burial traditions seem to be built to address the legend of the vampire. The corpse is watched over for 24 hours in the house where they died before it's buried. A candle is to stay lit from the time of death until the actual burial. A small bit of gunpowder is set off in the casket to repel evil. When the body is finally buried, incense is burned, while the priest conducts several rituals to ward off any malevolent spirits that may linger. The residents of Kiselyevo take pride in their cemetery, spending more upkeep on it than their own homes. It's thought, or perhaps hoped, that taking care of the dead's resting place will ensure that the dead won't rise later on. We'll see these careful traditions pay off after this. Now, back to the story. While the idea of vampires spread from Serbia to the rest of the world, changing as it went, vampire legends have never left the country. From descendants of Peter Blagojevich refusing to speak about the man's death and rumored rebirth, to medical campaigns across the country to prove the existence of vampires, the risen dead are never far away. In 2012, the Serbian town of Zarozhye told ABC News that they were preparing for a potential vampire attack when their over 100-year-old water mill collapsed. The town had long believed that a vampire lived within the mill and soon would be looking for a new home and victims. According to National Geographic, the local council issued a public health warning that the resident vampire, Sava Savanovic, may be on the prowl. Savanovic is Serbia's most famous vampire, thanks to an adaptation of his story by Milovan Glisic, Glisic's book, After 90 Years, turned into a TV movie called Liptirica, or The She-Butterfly. Liptirica is often cited as the first Serbian horror film. The mill was a daylight-only tourist attraction from the 1950s to 2012, but the Jagadic family, who owned the building, 
say that they were afraid to do any restoration, lest they disturb Savanovich. Andre's family needed money. They had spent the past winter starving in their home, and now his little girl was sick. But he had an idea that would save them. Like their neighbors in Romania or Zaroje, they too could offer a tour based around their famous vampire, Peter. He'd learned snatches of the story around town, but he needed something bigger to lure people in. Something that couldn't be found online. Something that had to be experienced. He needed Peter's grave. The ground had not yet begun to thaw as Andre hiked up to the bluff where the village's cemetery sat, overlooking the man-made lake called the Srebrno Yezero, or Silver Lake. The sun was setting, and Andre had to put his shovel down to turn on his flashlight. He tripped over one of the slate markers in the newer part of the cemetery, banging his head against another one of the stones. Blood dripped down into his eyes, but he wiped it away. If his grandmother were here, she would tell him to stop. It was a bad omen to start a journey with an injury. But she also would have told him the dead needed to be left alone, that they had opinions to be obeyed and respected. But his little girl was sick, and he respected her. He was working in the dark, not out of a flair for the dramatic or an interest in being scared, but because the town would not approve of his actions. He hoped they would change their minds when the money flowed in. They had already taken the money of the tourists who had come looking. Why couldn't he look too? Peter would be in the oldest part of the burial ground, the one with nameless, thin green stones, poking timidly through the earth like the fingers of some buried-alive giant. Andre's thinking was simple. The vampire's body would at least partially be intact 300 years later. He would dig up every grave in this area if he had to, but he would find that body, or at least a strange body, and that would be Peter. The wind stung his face as he placed the flashlight against a stone slab to face him, illuminating his dig site. Andre swept away the dead leaves. He tried to dig into the ground, but his shovel slid against it. Andre tried again. His shovel bit down into the ground, and he started to dig. Sweat dripped down his back as he forced the dirt up. He pushed through layers of soil, plunging deeper into the ground until he hit something different than dirt. Armed with his flashlight, Andre jumped down into the hole. He was immediately swallowed by a mass of putrid, partially decomposed bodies sinking into a pool of half-rotted corpses. Congealed flesh and broken bones clung to his skin. He dropped the flashlight as he slid deeper, trying to push his way to the top. But the bodies were heavy, and they had been pressed together tightly for hundreds of years. Andre felt a piece of bone dig into his skin as he clawed through the flesh. He could feel it sticking to his fingers as he pushed up towards the wet air. He made it through the mass and dug his hands into the barely softened earth as he continued his climb. 
his flashlight still shone from atop the bodies, and he could see the different colors across their faded skin. Black, orange, bits of green and blue. There was something dried and red around their ears and mouths. He couldn't see where one body ended, and another began. He remembered now. Plague pits. The potential cause of all these vampire legends in the first place. Bodies piled on top of bodies, covered in pustules, freezing and thawing since 1738. And there was no telling if he'd accidentally touched or inhaled whatever had killed them. Perhaps it was still lurking in the soil, waiting for someone like him to provide them with a new host. He pulled himself up and out, wiping the excess slime from his coat. It was just his clothes, he told himself. Clothes could be washed. Money was forever. Stability was forever. He was still too unnerved to retrieve his flashlight, so he bent down to the ground and swept his hands out, searching for another stone marker. As soon as he found one, he grabbed his shovel and started the digging process again. This time, he had to crawl into the grave he was digging while he shoveled. He felt something moving near his feet, but he couldn't make out the creature in the dark. It clawed at his pants, almost warning him to stop digging. He was annoyed now, so he didn't listen, shoveling more dirt and tossing it back up to the harder ground. Black and red sludge dripped down his hands, remnants of his last grave search. It forced him to grip the shovel tighter, but the shovel slipped through his grasp. He wiped the mess from his hands onto his pants and bent down to retrieve it. Something scratched the back of his neck. He lifted his hand and felt four marks driven into his skin. Another omen. But he wouldn't let his family down. He spoke to the wind as he dug, barely believing he was doing it. He mentioned his starving family, the sick child, and his plan for money. If what his grandmother said was true, you were not at risk if you had ties to the community, if you were pure of heart and mind. The wind gave no answer back. As Andre kept going, Something flew towards his face and knocked him backwards onto the cold ground. He looked up, used the soft light of the moon to search the skeleton-like trees and dry underbrush. But whatever had come towards him was gone. He began digging again, wiping the sweat out of his eyes, only to realize he was getting more human remains on his face. He turned his face to the moon again. The trees had moved. He was sure of it. He blinked. Then he wasn't sure at all. Hating his hypocrisy, he whispered a prayer to himself, his voice quivering. Something tugged at his leg. He looked down to find an errant root, its small tendrils reaching for him like a tiny clawed hand. He shook it clear of his boot and began shoveling again. He nearly crowed with success. He'd struck a coffin. He kneeled down to brush away the dirt, to find the stone slab he could stand on to examine the body. 
something was scratching at his boot again. He turned back to find the root once more, but he'd moved two meters forward. Somehow, it had gotten longer. The root shot out of the soil, looping around his leg and pulling hard. He fell to the earth roughly, his chin bouncing off the coffin lid, now only partially covered by earth. He pulled, trying to get away, but it held fast. Andre tried to scream for help, but he was too far away from the village now. No one came here at night for fear of what would happen. The shadow of a figure stood beside the slate headstone, its head tilted as though it was examining its work. Andre yelled for it to help him, to have mercy and save him from this fate. The man picked up a fistful of dirt and threw it on top of Andre's body. Andre could hear the shovel scraping against the soil and the frost. More dirt followed, dust to dust. The last thing Andre saw was the moon, covered by a cloud. Many vampire and other revenant legends come from a search for the cause of plagues or other mysterious sickness, often contagious wasting illnesses like tuberculosis. The exhumed bodies of the sick would look so different from their living counterparts that superstition became interwoven with anatomy to provide a supernatural solution, the vampire. Matteo Barini, a forensic archeologist and anthropologist, points out that the Serbian iteration of the vampire legend could be a misinterpretation of the natural variations in the human body's decomposition process. The corpse can produce what is called purge fluid. Although it may be similar in appearance to blood and can make cheeks look rosy, it's an expected part of natural organisms' chemical decomposition. Barini notes that all medical reports of vampire cases show normal if outlying markers of decomposition at a time when very little was understood about how the body breaks down after death. The cycles of thawing and freezing that are a hallmark of the Serbo-Croatian climate would also help preserve parts of the body for longer than in other regions. In the West, vampires can be heavy-browed minions or sexy, sparkling teenagers. But in Kiseljevo, they're creatures of thought, traveling on the winds of whisper and superstition. Perhaps, if you do not believe, Peter cannot touch you. But do you really want to take that chance? After all, they never did find his grave. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler 
It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Lilda Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>